You're listening to audio from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. If you'd like to learn more about Parkview, find more resources, or give to our ministry, please visit parkviewchurch.org. I, I was so encouraged to see all the prayer requests and the praises that came in and part of our household initiative of, of loving and caring for one another is really uh, part of this is praying for one another and uh, folks we can't pray enough and our God is always hearing our prayers and one of the things we're going to be doing here in a couple of weeks is launching a 40-day prayer initiative where we're going to encourage you to pray with us for 40 days. We're going to give you a, a manual to follow, and we're all going to be praying the same things uh, for 40 days, and then we'll conclude that with a special time. So we're looking forward to that. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Last week, Pastor Will did a wonderful job as he helped us see that as we grow as whole disciples, when we hear and do what the Lord demands especially that we are to be marked by radical love towards others. We're to be set apart by that love. We're to be known by and known for that love. And that love is to be generous. It's it's sacrificial. It's to be humble and honest. And it's to be authentic, proven love. You know, we're never more like our Heavenly Father when we love our enemies. You and I were enemies. Yet He loved us. We're called to practice radical and generous and authentic love. One of the great battles for a preacher is deciding how much to cover each week. And and we've laid out this Luke series uh, many months ago and when you come to some, some of those breakdowns, you think, how am I going to do this well? And uh, sometimes a, a slower and more detailed walk through a book of the Bible, it, it comes easier and it, it allows you to hit everything well and to maybe outline things well. But you also have to think, you don't want it to be too long. We don't want to be in the Gospel of Luke till uh, 2035. So we want to make sure we get through some, uh, we cover some verses as we go. We preachers love it when we can outline things and make, it, make three clean, clear points. And, and even better, if we can alliterate them, right? You know, so it's very memorable. As I wrestled with this and prayed through today's message, believe it or not, I felt as though the Lord was guiding me to not reduce it down too much. I'll be presenting questions for you to wrestle through. We will notice today that... that Jesus extends grace despite the worthiness of the recipients. He expresses astonishment at the faith of a Gentile. And he exhibits authority over illness and death. There are certainly themes here that we can't, can't miss. Authority is a theme here. Worthiness is a theme. And, and faith is certainly central here. But it's not limited to those. So I'm wondering what the Lord might lead us to, what the Spirit might lead you to, and how you will respond. Would you pray with me? Father, we commit this time to you now, and we ask that you would move mightily in our midst. 
Lord, even just for the, the prayer requests that were just recorded, I know that you know each one of those, and so we lay those before you, and we ask you to move and to work in a mighty way. And for the praises, God, we give you thanks for so much, and yet we miss so much as well in our praise. Lord, you're so good, and we just thank you. Father, we are delighted that we can gather like this in freedom and that we can uh, sing these songs and pray and open the word like this without threat, and we're, we're thankful for that. And Father, we would ask now that you would use this time, that your spirit would speak to each heart and life and speak through me. And Father, may we respond in an appropriate way. In the name of Christ, we lift all these things up. Amen. Certainly, we can all think of uh, authority in our lives, right? We have various authorities, whether it's the legal realm. We have authority uh, that we're under in that realm. Uh, maybe it's as simple as an HOA. My wife and I decided a long time ago we are not a good family for an HOA. It's just problems waiting to happen. So we don't do that. Uh, but Maybe in the work realm, you understand her authority because you have a boss. And even if you own your own business, you can function under the authority of a client or a customer. In the education realm, you know what it's like to be under the authority of a professor or whoever's, whoever's leading. But even those professors, they understand the idea of a governing board. We have authority structures in, in a family and, and, and parents and then that whole system. And, and, and certainly as Christians, we understand the authority of our Lord. We also understand the idea of, of worthiness. We think of a daily life. We, we decide which problems are serious enough to demand our immediate attention. Are our products worthy of the price? Are restaurants worthy of us visiting them? Is a show worthy of our attention or the ticket price? Is a class worthy of our time and does it help us get where we need to go? We understand faith. Think about uh, what, what we trust. You probably trusted a vehicle to get here today or, or an airplane when you travel, you had a certain level of trust in the food that you ate. Think about whom we trust. You put your trust in doctors, in surgeons. Just this week, I was traveling to Tulsa for the board of directors meeting for the Free Church and traveling in some cruddy weather for airplanes. And I remember thinking how much, at some point, how much trust that I put in a pilot or in the plane that I'm in. You flying through fog and then all of a sudden you're on the runway. You know, just there's a lot of trust placed there. You trust your pastor. Maybe you don't. We'll talk. <laughs> and we trust God. Look with me at Luke chapter 7. That's going to be our primary text today. Luke 7, starting in verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, 
he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. He is the one who built us our synagogue. Fascinating account here. And he's in Capernaum. This is uh, common for Jesus. And, uh, and the sermon on the flat place or the plain was, was now complete. And, and Jesus has gone into Capernaum, a small town on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. An interesting character here in the scene, the centurion. A centurion with a beloved servant who was valued by him. Very ill, near death. When we see servant, we could also see the word slave. And well, obviously we know the negative commentations about the idea of slavery. And, and in this day and age, it was sometimes bad, but more often it was similar to an employee type of situation. Uh, people would actually kind of sell themselves into the service of an owner in, in, uh, in exchange for housing and, and, and food and care. So he, he'd heard about Jesus, and probably not hard to, because there's an estimated 1,500 people in Capernaum at this time, not a very big region, and, and some of you know just how how fast news can spread in a small town. If anybody here from small town America or small town Iowa, you know that if something happens, everybody knows, right? It moves pretty quick. Certainly would have been the case in, in this day and age here. Jesus was no doubt the conversation of choice for many. Something new to talk about. And then there's a fascinating storyline here. You've got a centurion who hears about Jesus, but he sends Jewish elders to ask Jesus to come and heal his servant. I mean, that raises questions because you've got uh, the Jews and this Roman military leader. And there's typically not a good relationship there. The Jews didn't love the, the Roman uh, oppression on them and certainly the Roman military. So think about this. This centurion is a Gentile military man with a hundred Roman soldiers under his leadership. Somehow he feels that he can ask slash send these elders to do his bidding. On one level, it makes sense. You, you, Jesus is a Jew, so you use your connections, right? And so you ask his people to ask him. Certainly, we've all done this type of thing at one point or another. Maybe we aren't proud of it or not, but we've used a connection to maybe gain access somewhere we wouldn't have had access. But most interesting here is the apparent eagerness with which they do it. At first glance, you would think they would have no desire to help this Roman military man, but look again at 4 and 5. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he's the one who built us our synagogue. The Greek term oxios here is, is deserving, or best said, worthy. He, he's worthy. Fascinating. These Jewish elders are lobbying for a Gentile military man saying he's deserving or he's worthy of help and giving the good reasons, right? He has, he's loved our nation. 
This is a, a Roman guy who's been good to us. He built us our synagogue. I'd love to know more detail on that. So they're presenting good reasons. So these Jewish elders are, are sent, they're authorized by this centurion to go to Jesus. And they tell Jesus the merits of this man. The centurion has his own thoughts about worthiness here. Look at verse 6. And he went with them. And Jesus went with them. And when Jesus was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed, for I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Notice the centurion asked the elders to, to have Jesus come and heal his servant. Then ironically, he sends out his friends to stop him from coming. Don't trouble yourself. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. And we've got to say, okay, what, is this a change of heart? He asked the elders, have, have him come and heal my servant. And then when, he, when it's actually happening, he sends his friends out, don't, let, don't have him come. Just have him say the word. Interesting. Now, for context, the centurion would have known that for a Jewish rabbi to enter the home of a Gentile is very complicated. The threat of ritual uncleanness would make this unlikely. So the centurion is saying, listen, don't put yourself through the trouble. He's really acting kindly toward Jesus and saying, listen, you know, I, I know what this all, the ramifications of this are, so don't, don't put yourself through that. In verse 6, the worthy we see is, is a different Greek term, ekonos, an adjective meaning adequate, sufficient, or important enough. Don't trouble yourself to come here. I'm not important enough. I'm not adequate enough for you to visit me, to go through that trouble. The Jewish elders said he was a man worthy of help, but he feels different. Perhaps because he understood the religious complications. I want to draw your attention to two different translations of verse 7. Look at the ESV, which we're looking at here. It says, therefore I did not presume, that's where it's translated to there, to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. The New American Standard says, for this reason I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. The same term as the Jewish leaders use here, axios, deserving or best said worthy, but interpreted a little different. And notice the, the difference here. We've got this, this moral scale or, or, or balance. Jewish leaders are saying he's worthy. He's a deserving guy. Great guy. Centurion saying, I'm not good enough. I'm undeserving. I'm not important enough. 
Two different views here, and, and the centurion understands that this is all about authority. It's authority, this power and influence. Just say the word and it will happen. He gets it from his understanding of, of his own authority. He gets a picture of it, and he understands that Jesus clearly is a man of authority. Verse 9 and 10 are amazing. When Jesus heard these words, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. We cannot read quickly over statements like this. Jesus marveled at him. Our Lord went, whoa. He marveled. He wondered. He was astonished. He was amazed. Only happens twice. He was formerly astonished and amazed by the lack of faith in Nazareth. Remember? But here he's noticing this incredible faith. He's filled with wonder. He's astonished by this man's faith. And this needs to grab our attention, folks. It must. His faith stands out even in all Israel. It's got to grab our attention. What this man understood about power and authority impresses Jesus. And notice also the, the Gentile ministry theme that we've had, right? Consider Simeon's prophecy back in, in chapter 2. A light for revelation to the Gentiles. The gospel runs right through this passage. He's showing this, this opening up to the Gentiles here. All right, now Luke takes us to this, this very small town of Nain, 20 to 25 miles southwest of Capernaum near Nazareth. Look with me at verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. It's a very small community. And here comes Jesus with his twelve and with a crowd. And we don't know why Jesus was even, even there. We, we might be inclined to believe that it was for this very occasion. And, and, and I, I like to see it that way. Because I understand the heart of our Savior or at least try. As they approach, they encounter a funeral procession. The culture did not use coffins. The body would have been wrapped in, in these linens very tightly with excessive amounts of spices wrapped in to mask the odor of decay. The body would then be carried and followed by mourners. Clearly, this man had been de dead long enough for them to wrap up his body and gather mourners uh, to, to march his body to a limestone grave. And, and they would do this pretty quickly. 
And I want you to just pause for a minute and just imagine the grief for this widow who's now lost her only son. He would have been in that culture her uh, protector. He would have been her provider. And really, in, in many respects, her source of status. And now she's walking behind his dead body. This leaves her now without a means of support. Sort of lost in society. To some degree, probably felt a little bit hopeless. And Luke tells us that Jesus sees her and he has compassion on her. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that we have a Lord who sees. And I'm glad that we have a, a Lord who's compassionate. But then he tells her not to weep. And, and come on, weeping is a natural response here. And in that culture, you actually gathered mourners to weep with you, and sometimes you paid them to do so. Can you imagine? We've got to make sure we have an adequate amount of, of emotion expressed and pain expressed here. And then Jesus comes in and, and goes against the culture and says, Do not weep. And you, you and I have to be uh, forced here to wonder, uh, did the widow even see him coming? Was she so overcome with grief that she didn't even see him coming? Or, or had she even heard about Jesus? And, and who would ask her not to weep at her son's funeral? And I think it's noteworthy that she made no request of Jesus that we know of. It would certainly gather everyone's attention, even if they recognized him as Jesus or, or not. Someone, a, a stranger, approaches a grief-stricken woman at a funeral and says, do not weep. What? All eyes are on Jesus at this moment, I guarantee it. Perhaps someone recognized Jesus or had heard of him or wondered if this was Jesus as they came near. Look at verse 14. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all of the surrounding country. He, he raises the dead. He, he, he sat up. Can you imagine witnessing that firsthand? I would suspect that some people are just backing away going, whoa. And the other curious types are leaning in a little bit closer. They want to confirm this, right? You know which type you are. And then to hear the once dead man speak, can you imagine? What was he saying? Was he, was he confused? It makes sense. 
Imagine being him. You, you wake up and you're wrapped in linen in this pungent spices and, and, and some guys telling you to arise and, and the people around you are all freaking out, moving away, moving closer, uh, looking like they'd seen a ghost. Imagine being that widowed mom thinking all hope was lost but now told not to weep and the same man tells your son to arise, and he does? And you hear your son's voice again. And the same man gives you back your son. And Luke wants us to know that fear seized them all. I bet it did, right? Anyone doubt that? This fear and this awe of God. And they're glorifying and praising God and declaring a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. They know they've, they've impacted or they, they've in, come and encountered something incredible here. They're blown away. But isn't that interesting that that fear leads to glorifying God? They know that they've been part of this holy encounter. How great is it that God's power is greater than any illness and greater than death? You know, medical advances are amazing, but they're limited. And our God is not limited. How great is it that God has the authority over the grave? And guess what? We don't have to be worthy because we can't do it. It's His worthiness. Some of us will, and many of us probably already have had close calls with death, and we survive. But ultimately, death will come unless Jesus returns first. But we understand here there's one who is greater than death. One who has the authority. And that authority is to speak life into being. Authority to raise dead to life. His name is Jesus. He has authority over the natural realm and even death. And I ask you today, do you know him? And do, do you believe like this Roman centurion did? Where, where's your faith? I hope you realize that you're not worthy in and of yourself to receive anything from the Lord. And so you just got to get over yourself here a little bit. It's interesting to note that these Jewish elders falsely declared the centurion worthy. But he himself knew he was not. And you know, he was right. You see, worthiness is, is unattainable by, for us without Christ. 
It only comes through Him. And worthiness is completely unsustainable as well. Sinful men and women cannot merit favor before God. But interestingly, these Jewish elders kind of mistakenly had wrapped some of their theology and their lives around the concept, saying he's a good man. He did good things. He was supportive. He helped build their synagogue. There was certainly something there, wasn't there? But worthy? No. C.S. Lewis the one essential symptom of the regenerate life is a permanently horrified perception of one's natural and, it seems, unalterable corruption. The true Christian's nostrils is to be continually attentive to the inner cesspool. We can't take it too far. We'll only see sin and not the grace that Jesus uh, frees us from that sin. Kent Hughes says, the fact is, no one is in a position to understand Christ and Christianity who is not acquainted with his own evil nature. It starts with an understanding that we're not there. But we tend to make worthiness assessments, don't we? Some 26 years ago, as my father was wasting away from cancer, I remember telling God how worthy my father was to have him heal him. And I remember listing the reasons and even how the kingdom would benefit from his healing. God, you have the authority and the strength. He deserves it. Is that, is that an accurate theology? Hughes goes on, Do you see yourself as deserving of Christ's grace as the elders saw the centurion? Do you inwardly think that because you are a lover of the church and even more a giver of your money, you are worthy of God's care? Have you secretly internalized others' good opinions of yourselves so that despite the persistent teaching of God's Word that salvation comes through faith and that it is a gift of God, that you imagine that somehow you will make it into the kingdom based upon your personal virtue? Do you see Christians who glibly talk about their salvation but do not measure up in their walk, and then reason that because your life is better than theirs, you certainly will make it into heaven. We've got to be careful there, don't we? And I realize I jumped into to justification here, but this whole worthiness spreads throughout the whole idea. We've got to be careful here. We got, this is dangerous to get into. That's why we make it a regular part of our, our sermons and our, our worship times to, to be thinking about confession. Reminded of our own unworthiness and how desperate we are for Christ's worthiness. The son and her widow were not worthy, but Jesus, in his great compassion, had mercy on them. This one, Jesus, is worthy of our legions. No one else is able to establish his own worthiness by good deeds. 
for those of us who call Jesus our, our Savior and Lord, we have confessed those sins. We've repented of our sins. We've acknowledged our own unworthiness. We've asked Jesus to come in and to be the Lord of our lives because we recognize that we're not worthy, but He is. And when we've done that, the day will come when we will be raised to eternal life, people. Raised to eternal life. He is worthy. And He is the one with the authority. I want to wind up by asking you some questions to, to get you thinking in your own mind. What are you relying on for your relationship with God? Are, are there externals or internals? Folks, the gospel really is good news that we are lost in sin without God's intervention. But, but, but because of Christ, we can be redeemed. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. I felt like I couldn't just leave it here this morning. And so I want to ask you more questions. Do you recognize that, that Jesus has more than just the authority to redeem you and bring you into heaven? His authority doesn't stop there. And I think sometimes in the, in the Christian realm, we just kind of take care of eternity, and then we go and we work our way through everything else. And I'm not minimizing the fact that we can be saved by grace and enter into etern our eternal presence of God. I, I, I'm not minimizing that for a second. But when we consider Jesus' reaction to the faith of the centurion, it was a based on, on that centurion's understanding of the authority and the power of Jesus. For life, and even for an illness. How's your faith? Is it just faith that, that eternity will be taken care of? Or is it faith that God will be with me in day-to-day -day life and that He is in charge of all of it? You're not worthy of His care, but because of His kindness and His compassion, He sees you, and you can ask Him, and He is able. What are you doubting? Because your mind can't see into the supernatural realm. What are you struggling with? I can trust God for this, but yeah, not that. I think sometimes even Christians live life as though they are defeated. And folks, you've missed out on who Jesus is if you're living defeated. Uh, you can give me all the, all the circumstances and all the struggles and all the history. All the, God is still God and His authority still stands. And He is able. My time is gone, but let me just say this. What do you need to hear Jesus say to you? My daughter, arise about. My son, arise. What do you need him to raise you out of? What do you need him to remind you that he is faithful and that he is in authority to make a difference? Would you just bow for prayer with me? And I'm going to give you 
a minute on your own to fill in the blank that Jesus might say to you, my daughter, arise from. My son, arise from. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for your word. It's so amazing. It's so complex in, in so many levels and yet so simple. You are God and there is no other and you have desired a relationship with us. And that through faith in Christ and trusting in his worthiness that that relationship begins now. It doesn't begin in eternity. It's, it begins at conversion and, and you're with us and you're able. For God, God, we ask you to forgive our unbelief. Lord, may we be people who have astonishing faith because we have a right view of who you are and who our Savior is. And may all glory and honor and praise be unto you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.